Hello and welcome to another episode of the Authentic Path podcast. It has been a while and this is episode number 19 with a singer-songwriter named Jonathan Hodges who goes by the alias Bometheus. And Jonathan is an amazing dude. He has done so much work to uncover his own authentic path and really decide for himself what the right choices look like in his life. He is in the midst of figuring it all out for himself and comes to this conversation with all of that on the table, totally open to share it. And his story is pretty crazy. There's a lot of really good stuff in there and a lot of stuff that I didn't expect to hear and that I was really touched that he felt willing to share. So I hope you really enjoy this episode and are excited to hear some vulnerability and some authenticity in this episode. So hope you enjoy. And without further ado, this is episode number 19 of the Authentic Path podcast with your host, Phelan Sugarman Lash. Enjoy. Three, two, one, zero. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. So you are a musician and you are exploring the deep angst of life through music. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I would love to hear um, just a little bit about like what being a musician actually means to you right now at this point in your life. Um, well, right now, uh, it means <laughs> it means teaching because <laughs> you have to make money <laughs> somehow. <laughs> um. So every day there's a lot of teaching small small people um, and trying to find middle C and trying to do all of that over Zoom and FaceTime without losing your mind. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, uh, it's writing and collaborating with people. And um, I've said from the beginning, really, that my purpose as, a, as an artist is to elevate the general quality of my listeners suffering and I'm not really in any of this for fame or money which is good because neither of those are working out I'm only here <laughs> to make uh I'm only here for the tears and so far that that's working pretty good so that's all I really care about awesome yeah I love that when you reached out to me that was like the thing that stuck out was that you're in it for the listeners suffering and I was like yeah that's a great mission yeah <laughs> Well, because by extension, I suppose that's an extension of being in it for my own suffering. Um, yeah. And Tell just, us more about that. Oh, <laughs> um, well, we'll start I, off really deep. We'll just like get right. We'll into it. <laughs> I, um, I suppose it's difficult to describe that without giving some context, but um, really, so Bometheus is like my alter ego recording alias, I guess. And really growing up, it was just my nickname. Like it didn't, it didn't really mean anything um, special. It was just what my parents called me. And then um, I started writing music and I put out a, a short record that no one should ever listen to using my real name, Jonathan Hodges. And then I immediately started working on the next thing, which is a trend I've tried to continue, which is whenever I'm working on a record, I'm always working on the next record too. So I was working on at least two records at a time. And um, I was partway through it. I remember my my dad walked in one day and he was like, have you ever like Googled Bometheus to like see what comes up? And I was like, no, not really. So he looked it up and the only thing that came up at all was me. And because uh, I'd used it for like social media and stuff. And I was like, oh, and he was like, dude, just use that. Just Just make that your artist name. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. And uh, so I took that. Um, and over time, I kind of developed an idea for using it to signify something I diagnosed myself with, which is what I call manic indifference. Um, and it's, it's like a quality of, of finding everything funny and meaningless constantly and kind of having to fight against that urge which i think most people probably have this but um it seemed to be kind of controlling my life <laughs> which when you're in the depths of despair i think it's kind of like the only defense mechanism that's viable and uh so i thought it would be fun to 
um, attempt to outgrow those aspects of myself through my writing and, and, and my music. Um, and so all of my, especially my early work, everything is tongue in cheek. Everything is a joke. Everything is about the dialectic and, um, trying to explore the depths of my own depravity and hopefully people see, uh, something they can relate to, uh, when I hold a mirror up to myself and point and laugh. Um, I think over time, I've kind of found that to be um, not really life-giving. I think I've found it to be uh, a product of someone young having something to prove or needing to prove something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I, did, I did a lot of, like my early records, there's a lot of silliness and a lot of stuff that is completely unnecessary. <laughs> At the time, it felt very necessary. Um, but I think also a lot of that just fed into my um, disgust with higher education and my experience with college and administrators. Um, I needed somewhere to channel my my disgruntled feelings <laughs> and uh, <laughs> making all of them public seemed like the best idea at the time. <laughs> But um, I think now I'm more interested in trying to um, create things that are life-giving for me and hopefully for my listeners as well. Yeah, love that. It seems like you've come on a journey of music from like using it maybe as an escape to using it as an evolution, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's super cool. So what's changed for you like in the way that you create in order to bring life as opposed to mere despair? Um, I think I, I just got really tired, <laughs> Yeah, you know, when you, um, when, when you're having a, a really bad day and everything just seems horrible and you go to music and the only songs of yours that you play just kind of make everything even worse. Like, <laughs> that isn't really a great place to be. Um, so especially this year. Um, a little bit, well, I suppose I started writing the songs I'm recording now a little over a year ago. Um, it kind of dawned on me that I, at the very least needed to be providing myself with, with something that made life easier rather than just laughing at what was making life difficult. Cause I think like, like a lot of early philosophers, um, specifically in the, I would say in the middle ages, a little bit into the early modern period, you mostly get writers who are content to show you what is wrong with the world and to go into very graphic detail about the extent to which things are wrong to a degree that you may not have really thought about yourself, but then they don't leave you with any answers. (laughs) They don't tell you what to do about it. There's like, yeah, it's pretty bad, right? all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go. (laughs) And so, um, I realized I was just doing the same thing, except, I mean, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, I mean, I was really just doing it to myself. Um, and it wasn't really, yeah, it just, it just didn't feel like anything good was coming of it. So, I started trying to write things. Oh, I think also something that was very, um, I would say something that catalyzed the whole process for me was I was finally able to start performing live more. Mm-hmm. Um, I started writing in college and I studied violin performance. So I was in orchestra all the time. I barely had time to even teach, like to make money to live, <laughs> but uh, much less to go perform my work. And the only thing that kept me sane at all was recording and writing at the rate that I was. Um, while having to deal with the drudgery of nonsense that um, was expected of me. And so I couldn't really get out and get in front of, I was mostly just screaming into the void of the internet, it, <laughs> which in and of itself is a demoralizing thing to do. So yes, yeah. <laughs> um, once I graduated and my time was my own, um, one, the plan during school was once I realized what I wanted to do, 
uh, it was write and write and record and record so that I had as much material as possible to perform when I got out. And by the time I graduated, I had three, well, really four, but only three Bomefius records done um, and published. So I, I successfully did that. Um, but then I got out there and actually started playing in front of people. And I was like, you know, I don't think this is fun for everyone else. <laughs> I think uh, they just kind of look at me and they're like, well, that's sad. <laughs> Which uh, doesn't, yeah, that there's really no point to that. So um, I started, um, one, you know, playing in front of people, but also watching other artists play in front of people and watching what people connected with. Um, Cause I mean, it's important to be true to what you have to say, to be authentic about what it is that you mean and what you're thinking about and to convey it the way that you want to. But at the same time, if you are going to make a living out of conveying important things to people, you should probably attempt to do so in a manner that <laughs> it reaches people rather than uh, shoving them away. Yeah, that's super true. What were your strategies for like picking up on connection from your audience? Um, talking to people, um, watching. <laughs> I only play, I really only like playing small, intimate shows. Um, and I'd be, I, I found a, an open, an open mic in Dallas. So I'm, I'm in Dallas, Texas, um, called opening bell coffee. And it's like the longest running open mic in Dallas history. And, uh, it's a very tight knit community. Everybody knows everybody. Um, Pascal, the owner, really, really nice, really supportive of everybody that's trying to, to make music and enrich the community and stuff. Um, so I just started going constantly and you get to know people, you try out songs. It's pretty well attended or it used to be <laughs> prior to COVID. Um, so you, you get to know people that just are in there to listen. You get to know um, the other people that are writing and trying stuff out. And um, so really it was just honest feedback from people that saw what you were doing and had hope for you. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I think like, in my own life and, and in the business world, it's kind of the same, right? Like you, when you have an idea, you can't just like go do that idea and expect it to succeed. You have to like go start the idea and then ask people like, does this make sense? Do you want this? Right. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's sometimes different for artists because I think like when you show up in the world of art, like your only job is to create what you want to exist that doesn't exist yet. Um, but yeah, I think for you, like that makes a total, total sense. And especially considering like you're pretty young, right? Like, yeah, I'm 23. Yeah. So I think there's like a huge journey left for you, right? In music. And hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And I think, um, but when you dive down into like the fact that you've come out with four full length albums, like in the last four years, three years, right? Three like, years, yeah. That's insane. Like that is a, such a prolific rate of creation that I think like you have a lot to say, right? And I guess I'm just curious, like how do you stay so passionate and dedicated to the creation of music for like, such a an intense period of time because i think so many people you know struggle to come out with that first song right right um so for me it's so i yeah i, I mean i get this question frequently and, and sometimes like i deal with people just kind of looking at me like there's something wrong with me you know <laughs> which there probably is but um so you really i think to understand why you have to go back to, um, I think I was 14 or 15. So I, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and we moved to Austin, Texas. When I was, I think when I was 15. And um, shortly after we moved, my dad got cancer. And I'm the oldest of six kids. And we were all homeschooled. Um, and we just moved. So we didn't really have, I didn't really have a lot of friends wow. anyway. <laughs> then we moved and dad got cancer. And now we definitely, we're this is an incredibly isolating experience. Um, and, uh, so I had been playing violin since I was three, but violin is really hard <laughs> and, uh, it isn't, it isn't fun. Like 
it just isn't fun. It's it's mostly frustrating. And I've been playing for over 20 years and it's still mostly frustrating. Um, and so I started uh, playing guitar and I started to teach myself guitar with a vengeance, like, oh, like all day. Like that's just really all I would do. And then one day I walked in to the main part of the house. There was like this house we lived in was super disjunct and bizarre because like everything in the house was an add-on. And so I I would make all my sound and practice and get all my angst out, I guess, in the uh, garage that had been reformatted into this bizarre room that didn't get any airflow and was really hot. <laughs> and I came to the house one day and my little brother Charles was uh, playing piano and he was playing uh, the Mozart variations on Twinkle Twinkle, which are, it's a hilarious group of like 12 variations that are all kind of incredible. And um, it's all very funny because it's all based on Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And he was playing them and I was like, oh my goodness, he is playing something that I can't play on an instrument I have a very low opinion of because, you know, there's a certain amount of like immediacy, <laughs> immediate gratification associated with the piano when you're first starting out. Where like every time you press E, it's going to sound like E. And on the violin, it's not like that because <laughs> we don't have frets. So we don't have anything. And, um, and I was like, oh my goodness, he is better at the piano than I am. And so I dropped everything I was doing and just sat at the piano for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, then I started writing my own stuff. And I had been writing my own little things on violin and guitar for a while, but I'd always been really afraid of lyrics and they just seemed like a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, so I would just write musical ideas. So for... The next five years or so, um, really, I was a violinist who wrote piano compositions. And um, so, like, my first finished piece that I'd ever written um, was professionally recorded, I think, the same year that my dad recovered, like, the same year the cancer went into remission. And that same piece is on the record that came out this year, um, the record I worked on with my uncle Dave, um, it's the fourth track and it's the same recording. I only ever did one recording of the piece. Um, and so that, I just kept doing that. Like I kept writing new piano works all through high school, all through, well, I would say the first half of college before I transferred. And that's really all I did because I didn't have access to anything else. I still played guitar. I still did all that stuff. Um, but I'd never really written lyrics. I never really messed with that stuff until right before I went to college. I had a good, I had a good buddy. His name is uh, Nate Zivin. And we became friends in high school. And a week before I left, I was over at his place. We were messing around and he had this bizarre old synthesizer that he had found in a dumpster and he fixed it up and it worked. And I, we were messing around with it because it had all these goofy sounds on it. And he was like, we should, we should record something. Cause he was studying to be a uh, recording engineer. I was like, okay. I never even really thought about doing that. And so we did all this stuff. And then, uh, I wrote all the lyrics and sang everything. And it was actually kind of, it was really fun. <laughs> and it, it turned out the, the, I was far more passionate about it than he was. So we, we wrote a sing, we wrote a song every single night that week. And we finished the whole EP in a week. And and I remember I sent it to, I actually sent it to my Uncle Dave. And he was like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and then nothing ever came of it. Because um, even there, like I had more drive to do it than, I mean, I remember we were almost finished with the last song. Dark Skies was the last song that we did on there. And it was like 3 a.m., two nights before I had to fly out. I was going to, I was going to start college in Seattle. And, uh, I was like, Nate, we have to finish it. It was like 2 a.m. And he was like, Jonathan, I'll finish the track if we go get pancakes right now. <laughs> <laughs> and there, we were in Austin, so there's this little Kirby Lane Cafe was open 24-7. So I was like, fine. So we went and got pancakes. And then we, we didn't finish the track. It like took him a couple of weeks afterwards to, to finish everything and send it to me. But I've, I think I've just always been more intense about... Um, 
like getting stuff done. And I think I've always like really wanted to write my own songs and write my own music and to be able to record it. Um, Because probably the most frustrating thing about growing up was one, my parents were really very certain about me playing the violin, which was very good in the long run, but they weren't really supportive of any other instrument and everything else was just kind of fruitless, unnecessary noise that they didn't pay for. <laughs> so it was, everything was like, no, I really think I need to be doing this <laughs> in spite of, can you please make that noise somewhere else or just not at all? Um, and then as soon as I found the tools to do it, I, I just needed to do it all the time. Um, and over time, like on my phone, voice memos and such, like I probably had 200, 300 just little chord progression ideas, melodies, all sorts of different things um, that I'd never really been able to do anything because the only, do anything with because the only recording equipment I had access to was my phone. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a funny thing about music is like the the most limiting aspect of music is is economic. Like in classical music especially, like to have a good violin, something that doesn't sound like garbage and to attempt to win competitions and like qualify for good um, programs at the collegiate level and onwards, like there's a lot of money that has to be behind you and a lot of time that you have to have, which in and of itself means that you don't have to be working a job or doing all sorts of things. And then I suppose it's not, as classist in the popular music side of things, but even still like promotion and like you have to invest a lot in yourself to, to even really give yourself a chance. (laughs) But in terms of staying motivated, I, I just, I can't not, but do it. I, I have to do it. If I don't do it, I go insane. Yeah. I love that. I think that, um, you know, in terms of investing in yourself and the need to do that, it's, it's true of like any career, really, if you want to do your own path, right? Like you have to put in the work and also have the options to invest in yourself, you know? And so in that sense, like choosing an authentic path is a privilege most of the time. And that's something I've talked about with, with past guests. Um, and I think that connects really well to, I can't not do this, right? Like, if your only option is to create music, like it doesn't matter if you have to invest in yourself because like, it's just how you are. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm curious, like carrying that all forward, like we've talked about how you got into music and like the evolution from, uh, using it to like describe your, your negative emotions and like reflect on stuff. And then moving now into a more positive portrayal maybe of your life in the world. Like, how do you see yourself evolving musically into the future of, of you? Um, when you say musically, do you mean like philosophically, what am I going to be trying to write about or sonically? Like what, what kind of genres? I think that uh, more for like, who are you going to be as an artist and what are hmm. you going to create? Um, well, how far in the future do you mean? Just give us your, like, I don't know, whatever sounds exciting to you. I'm just curious, oh, like, okay. Where you want to go. Well, um, I don't really know where I want to go. I mean, I, I, I knew where I wanted to, I knew the steps I wanted to take before COVID hit. Now that COVID's hit, it, everything's kind of in a new, slowed down, bizarre <laughs> world. I think, um, like prior to COVID, I had finally gotten on with SoFar. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been trying for three years to get on with SoFar and try to play shows with them. And just, I never heard back from them at all. And then last year, a buddy I had met at that same open mic I used to frequent, um, he got a SoFar show and I saw, we, we hadn't talked in forever. And I saw he had had a show. And one of the things I, I do um, around town for various people is I'll just show up and play improv violin on whatever they're doing. 
because um, that's one of the things that I specialize in. So I can show up and with one rehearsal or none play and hopefully make your show better. And um, so I, I messaged him. I was like, Hey dude, we got to play a show together. And he was like, you want to play on Friday <laughs> so far? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I absolutely do. And so uh, I think we got together. We, we were able to get together once. And then we did a couple so far shows together at the first one. Um, I kind of got close to the, the organizer guy in charge and talked a little bit without trying to come off as too needy, just getting to know him. And then uh, we were getting to the end after we played our set, we went second and it went really well. So I went back and he was, he was excited because typically when you go to a live, a live show and someone says they're a violinist, like there are two options. Basically one is they're really good. And one is um, you're going to, you're going to have a sad couple of minutes while they try to play because <laughs> the violin is just, a, it's just a horrible instrument yeah. <laughs> and um, it went well. And so he was, you know, he, he was a little warmer and uh, I went up to him and I was like, look, I don't know if it's possible, but I wrote a song called tornadoes in Dallas. I brought my guitar and uh, the song is for uh, on October 20th of 2019 like seven tornadoes touched down in Dallas and like completely Whoa. destroyed all sorts of things. And I lived um, a few hundred feet away from the road that um, got the, the majority of the devastation. Like, so I wrote this song and I would really like to play it for everyone at the end of the night, if that's okay. Um, because it would just be sad for everyone to leave here thinking I just, I only play violin when I do a lot more than that. And he was like, absolutely. I definitely want you to play that song because he lived right there too. <laughs> and so um, I got to play it and it went really well. Everyone was really excited. And he gave my name to the coordinator of um, for DFWs so far. Um, and then I got my first show a couple months later. And that was in, I think that was in March. And then I was scheduled to do like two more shows and then COVID shut everything down. <laughs> Yeah. But I was, I was finally getting like a live audience of some kind and, and starting to cultivate listeners. And, um, so, I mean, in the future, like I, I don't really know necessarily where I want to be. I, when I look at trajectories of other artists, like I, I, the first record I ever listened to and understood that it was a record was Andrew Bird's uh, Noble Beast. And, um, Andrew Bird, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's awesome. I I could I could see my trajectory kind of following his path where he, you know, puts out records all the time, um, collaborates with other musicians all the time, is more interested in, you know, small uh shows where you can <laughs> you can see who you're playing to and perhaps even talk to them. Um and and like film scoring and stuff like that. Like, I really want to be able to do everything. I also am really interested in the production side of things. Um, so I really want to have my hand hand in every jar of the industry, I guess. Um, you know, making my own stuff and also helping people craft their own vision as well. Hmm. Cool. Sounds awesome. I think that that future is really exciting. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about how your latest album came to be and like what it meant for you to work on it with your uncle. Yeah. So um, my uncle, Dave Hodges, um, is a structural engineer who has his degree from Georgia Tech in aerospace engineering. He has nine children, shaves his head, doesn't wear shoes, and only listens to metal. <laughs> oh, and he's aggressively Roman Catholic. <laughs> the guy's the guy's ridiculous. <laughs> and um, when I told my now wife that I was going to write a record with him, she was uh, a little concerned, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, so um, Dave and I have been friends basically my whole life. Like. Dave 
growing up, I was, I took myself very seriously. Um, like I was the sort of kid where like at <laughs> church gatherings or whatever, if, if some old guy got on his knee to talk to me, I would get on my knee to talk to him. Uh, not because for it, I, I honestly just thought that's what we were doing. Um, just seemed very serious. So I, I, I guess I never really thought of myself as small or any different from, from an adult, but, um, Dave was one of the few adults that didn't laugh at me. Like he, he, he took me as seriously as I took myself and taught me to play chess and we played pool together and we did all this stuff. Like we just hung out all the time. And one of the, uh, like defining moments of our relationship, I think I was three, two or three. And, uh, I was over at my grandmother's house and he was there too. And we were just hanging out and a, um, a collection of, of like small sugar ants had invaded her pantry. And, uh, and he, he looked at me and he was like, John, have you ever eaten ants before? And I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> like, well, it's really fun. And we should, we should, you want to come do this with me? And I was like, okay, that sounds great. And so we were just squatting in the pantry, eating ants. And my mom was looking for me and she opens the pantry door and there I am. She was like, what is going on? And, um, and Dave was, Dave was just curious to see if I was willing to do something that no one had ever really told me not to do. And, and I was, and he thought that was fascinating. And, uh, <laughs> but that just kind of became, you know, lore for, for Jonathan and Dave. Like, Oh, I remember how Dave got Jonathan to eat ants. And, um, so we've, we've always kind of been close. I would say our relationship kind of rekindled around the time that that record with, uh, my buddy in high school came out and I sent it to him and he was like, Oh, this is weird that you're doing this, but okay, cool. And, uh, he even like wrote a review of it and called the thing like straight up muse worship. I don't know if you know the band muse, but I, yeah. uh, I grew up basically I learned how to sing because of Matthew Bellamy. <laughs> and, uh, so we, we, we kind of stayed close enough and then, um, I put out my first record as myself um, and I sent it to him and he was really puzzled by the whole thing. He's like, what are you doing? I thought you were a violinist. And I was like, no, I, I want to do a lot more than that. And he was like, I don't know about that. Okay. And then he kind of came around to it when my first Bometheus record came out and he was really like very emotionally affected by the record, which is really bizarre to me and kind of exciting i was like okay and then we just started talking all the time like we would probably talk at least once a month if not more on the phone just about nothing we talk about you know music and artists that have had big effects in our lives and um school and whatever like we just talked and um and then i finished my third record sweet nothings and Sweet Nothings got, it was like my breakout record, I guess. Hatwood Magazine called it a masterpiece and gave it a 10 out of 10. It was, it was really exciting. And it, yeah, I mean, it was cool. And after that record, I didn't really know where to go musically or what to do. And I hadn't had a good idea in a while. And of course, I think all artists, like they finish something that they're proud of and then all of a sudden they can't write anything new and they're terrified that they're never going to be able to write anything ever again. <laughs> so I was, I was having that a lot. And I told him and he was like, okay, well I have this poem that I wrote that I've kind of been thinking about recently. And I, I wrote it about 20 years ago. Um, and I've been trying to set it to music and work with other people to set it to music for a long time and nothing's ever come of it. So would you be interested in just, you know, maybe, maybe it sparks an idea for you. And I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Send it over. And then he didn't send it over. <laughs> so I, I had it in for, for like three or four days, just texting him, emailing him. And uh, finally he sends it to me with the subject line. I never should have sent this to you. And uh, I get it. I read it. And the structure of the poem. So the, the poem's called a amazing tonic. Um, and the structure of the poem is, is what we call an initialistic acrostic, which is where every three words, so the poem is written in groupings of three words, 
and those three words respectively begin with the letters A, M, and T. Um, and all of that, of course, is in reference to a psychedelic drug um, that Dave had a lot of experiences with. So the poem is about like two pages long. And over the course of the poem, he's telling you about all of his experiences with this drug, both good and bad as it goes. But all of it is ask me tomorrow about my things. About, and it just keeps going like that. And it's kind of virtuosic in that way. And um, I, was, I, was, I read it for a couple, probably a day and a half or so out loud. And I read it to people and had people read it. And I was like, I think that's just a good poem. I don't think it needs music. Like it, it works. Um, it, it, kind of the joke among songwriters, I guess, is that if you write a poem, but it's, it's kind of lacking, we'll set it to music and then it's fine. <laughs> and, and so, um, but this was actually a good poem. And then one day I was sitting there and I read it out loud and I, I hit record on my phone. I, I tend to do all of my writing while recording it. Cause whatever idea you come up with, if it wasn't recorded, you'll probably end up with a bastardization of the original idea unless you know yeah. exactly what it was. So I'm really careful about that. So I hit record, I read the whole thing and I was silent and just kind of meditated on it. And then I read the title again, Amazing Tonic. And in music, tonic refers to the, um, like the, the bass key that on which the, the entire scale of a piece is, is, is written. So like in C major tonic is C. And I was like, wait, tonic amazing. So we'll just, we'll just make tonic change all the time. And then the melody hit me and the chords hit me. And I was so excited. And I recorded the whole thing that day and I sent it to Dave and I never, I didn't hear anything for like ever. It seemed like, cause wow. when you, when you write something for somebody and you're really excited about it, no matter how long it takes them to get back to you, it feels like forever because you've kind of put yourself on the line and uh, if they reject it, they're rejecting you kind of thing. And so I didn't hear from him. And then he called me and he was like, hi, I'm really sorry. I didn't call you back. Um, I listened to what you sent and I couldn't stop crying. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. Like it was, it was really incredible. Um, and so he had some ideas for what to do to make it better. So I, I did all that and it was basically done. And I showed it to my roommates at the time. And one night my, my buddy, Travis, kind of had this moment of inspiration and he was, he was looking at me and he was like, what, what are you guys going to do with the, with the song? And I was like, Oh, I think I'll just put it out as a single. And I just found that photograph that is the cover art of he and I just standing together. And I was like, we'll just use this photo. It's really funny. Um, and that'll, it'll just be like a one-off silly thing. Cause it sounds like the song sounds like nothing else I've ever written. Like it's very out there. And, uh, he was like, no, 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 don't just do it. Do an entire, you guys should write an entire album together. And I was like, that is a great idea. So I called Dave immediately and he was like, what's going on? And I was like, uh, we need, look, I, I think we should write a whole album. And he was like, what? And there was silence. And then he was like, I need 15 minutes. I'll call you back in 15 minutes. <laughs> and he hung up. And 15 minutes later, he called me back. And he was like, all right, I'm in. I'll do it. But you have to hold me to it because tomorrow I'm, I'm not going to want to do it. Tomorrow I'm going to hate myself. And uh, so we, we, did, we did the whole album. We opened a, I opened a Google Doc that night and we brainstormed the title, Inadequate, um, spelled I Quit at the end. Um, and, and then we spent the next year, I, I think we wrote it from March to March. Um, and, and then it was done. Um, but one of the reasons I, I even wanted to pursue this with Dave and it felt really important to me to do it, um, was David had told me about his creative process in the past. And Dave and I have always, you know, plunked around on the piano and done stuff together. Like even that, um, piano piece, I wrote after my dad recovered before it was recorded. I played the whole thing for Dave and we brainstormed form and, and how the piece would unravel. And, and so, and even though it, it, it's an improvisation, 
and the majority of that recording, I had never played that way, then I'll never play it that way again. In terms of where certain big sections happen, a lot of that was due to my conversation with Dave. And um, he's always loved music, but he's he's always felt painfully mediocre um, attempting to do anything with what he loves. So like, for example, he would, he, he might write a, a piano or a choral piece or something, and then he'll step away from it for a few days, for a few hours or something. He'll come back to it and he'll be so disgusted by what he's written that he'll, <laughs> he'll print it off, delete the file, completely reformat his hard drive, and then set the piece on fire, <laughs> wow. which is really funny, but also tremendously sad that a person, yeah. you know, deals with their own creativity in this manner. And, um, so one of the things I really pushed for with this, with one, just doing the record, but then once we actually started doing the record, um, was Dave had having to not just, cause really how we split things was Dave wrote all the lyrics and I wrote all the music with some exceptions. And I was like, no, I want you to write at least one, one of these songs you're writing and performing it. You're doing, you're doing all of it. And, um, so he did, he, he came out for a business, some, some business related thing in Texas and he stopped in my apartment for a few days and we recorded this, uh, these songs. And one of the funny, the cool things that we did was we took one idea, which was, um, the eye surgery idea, uh, on the record. And each of us wrote our own song about it. So, um, one of uh, Jesus' famous commands is uh, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of another's. And so we both wrote songs based around what this idea means. Because the idea of like performing eye surgery on anyone is is kind of horrifying. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and performing eye surgery on yourself is really horrifying. And so um, Dave's uh, is the first, his is eye surgery one. And... Uh, he played the piano part and he actually sings on it. Um, but we ended up having me sing the, the main vocal. His vocal is in the background and like the melding of our vocals in that track is, is kind of creepy and ethereal and cool. Um, but he did actually perform on it and, and I, I was pretty proud of him for doing it. Um, and he, it, it's a, it's a process that you can't really recreate or, have any other way like knowing that i made a record with my closest uncle like his kids know about it like he'll be in the family forever like it's just a really cool thing and the other thing about the record is it's all about our shared experiences so one of the one of the things that even created the fodder for the record to begin with was the fact that we'd been talking about nothing for almost two years on a regular basis and uh, we come to the stark <laughs> conclusion that that our lives were hilariously similar. So we'd both grown up um, in the Christian Reformed world. Um, and then around college, we'd kind of had epiphanies of our own and been like, I think there's something wrong with this world. And I don't think it it's uh, what it professes to be. And those epiphanies were both sparked by reading Kierkegaard. Um, and Kierkegaard has been a huge influence in my life. It's been a huge influence in Dave's life. He, he actually named, uh, his firstborn son, Soren after Kierkegaard. Um, and, um, our experiences with, with drugs, while mine have not been as myriad as Dave's, we've learned the same thing. <laughs> it only took me... <laughs> really one serious experience to to realize that that isn't for me um i think it took him a few more but um you know our our perceptions of our purpose in life our perceptions of god our perceptions of um ourselves um and how we relate to other people uh they were just so hilariously similar and we hadn't been like guiding he hadn't been guiding me to do any of these things like we just kind of arrived at the same place um hmm. so that was really the that's really what fed the idea and what even really allowed us to do it because i i don't i never would have made a record with my uncle if i thought it was going to be bad 
but then I made a record that I think is good and called it inadequate. So I guess, <laughs> I guess that's its own thing. So what did you learn? Like, what is your, this is just an interesting topic for me. Like, what is your new relationship with God and purpose and presence and being that you've discovered? Um, discovering. So one of the things that Kierkegaard wrote about that really changed, um, my perception of God in either, or he spends a lot of time writing about the poet and the poet's idea of God. And he wrote something to the effect I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of the poet. It's not that the poet doesn't know that God is there. He's afraid that God isn't going to let him use his gifts <laughs> hmm. and growing up, like not being able, not really being supported to play guitar and piano and not really being, this is not really, really being supported to, to write my own things and really do my own stuff. Um, I was kind of, I, I lived in fear of not being allowed to write and create like I knew I wanted to. Um, and to varying degrees, I was afraid of God because I thought maybe he wanted me to do something horrible with my life, like sit in a cubicle. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't yeah. even imagine the, the the depths of depravity that that might might may have awaited might might be waiting for me um but it's uh i i think he gave me a certain amount of freedom to not not just wallow in my despair but take ownership and agency of my own purpose um cuz when you grow up with a Love you that. know calvinistic um, predeterministic ideal of what God is. You know, everything you do is worthless. Nothing you can do matters. Um, it's already been decided. Uh, (laughs) like the whole thing is so horrible. And, um, once you realize that, well, it isn't, it isn't like that. You you have agency. You have, if, if, if doors aren't open for you, that's fine. But that doesn't mean you're given license not to knock on the door, you know, not to, not to pursue those things to the extent that you can. Um, And so at the very least you aren't blamed and you can't blame yourself for not having been able to do something, you know, you can blame someone else maybe, or you can blame God, I guess, but you can't, you can't be like, man, I should have done that thing. Just, just don't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Or at the very least try. Um, and that that really informed. Once I came to that realization, it, it informed almost everything. Like I very quickly after that reached out to um, SMU and uh, the admissions office there and set up my transfer, which was kind of should have been impossible, but it, I it went through, um, and it ended up being really good in a lot of ways. Um, it inter- uh, it also informed like how I approached relationships and you know i definitely experienced a lot of failure in relationships but i'm married now and like i the the girl i found at, at smu like she wanted nothing to do with me <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sent her an email and uh here we are today like just wow. and not because you know i i wanted you know to control her or anything like that it was just i if I'm going to live with myself, I'm going to do everything in my power to voice my case and, and say what I want to, even if she still rejects me, like you just might as well put yourself out there. And I think it's the vulnerability really that that's most informative because, because vulnerability is really what informs good art and it's what informs authentic living. Yeah. I am like so in line with everything you just said. I think that once people realize that it's not like a, it's not complicated, it's just hard, right? Like it's not a complicated life to figure out like, how do I do this? It's just doing it, which is a lot of work, but you just sit down and do the work, right? And put yourself out there. And yeah, so love that. Uh, I think just to wrap us up and transition into the last question, like what does authenticity mean to you going off of that like vulnerability piece? Yeah, so... Um, I, I wrestled with this question a lot. Um, 
both just in forming my my own identity, but also my identity as an artist and my purpose. Um, I it's a difficult question to answer because I think if someone really is authentic, the idea of I think they're probably always wrestling with what that means. <laughs> I think yes. if you arrive at one conclusion and that's where you stay, I have a hard time accepting that you're really authentic. <laughs> yeah. um, so for me, I would say probably the easiest answer is to living an examined life, a well-examined life and a well-examined living an examined life. Um, is part and parcel to that constant evolution of perception, context, wisdom, and mistakes. Um, And all those things go hand in hand and create the authentic person you you hope to be. I have have a song on my uh, third record called Coming of Age. And growing up, not growing up, (laughs) I guess growing up as an artist, with my early records, people would always describe them as coming of age records. Like, Oh yeah, it's, it's a great coming of age record. And I always kind of took offense to that idea because if we're really honest, we're all coming of age constantly. If you've stopped coming of yeah. age, it's either because you don't want to live anymore or because you're actually dead. <laughs> and, um, and at that point you have in fact aged. Um, and so I I like to to joke that you know that that is what it means to to live you know if you think you've found your ultimate purpose you you're you're mistaken um or I but but at the same time if you don't believe in what you're doing when you're doing it there's no purpose in doing it so it's kind of the the great paradox of of authenticity I remember having a a debate with one of my roommates Reed uh, Mulligan, we were talking about the existence of the soul and whether or not it's real and, and what it is, if it, if it exists. And I have this idea kind of based on uh, Plato's uh, divided line in the Republic, where you have the things themselves, images of the things, mathematical ideas in which you synthesize the things, and then you have the idos of the good, like the greatest possible thing, the, the ultimate form of everything. And to me, the authentic self um, that we work towards until we die, hopefully, um, that is what the soul is. The soul is authenticity. Um, and in that way, it's kind of a reflect. We, we, we attempt to reflect it on a daily basis. Um, and I think that's why you, can, you, you find goodness in commonplace, mundane things. Like, the, you, you find little pieces where, where heaven and earth meet um, and there's just beauty and you, you can't really like I mean, sometimes even something as silly as just eating a good sandwich. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wow, that is really life-giving that sandwich. Um, and I, I think that when you come into contact with someone who is really meaningful about what they're doing and why they're doing it um, and they know and they understand and they've thought a lot about what they're doing and they've examined what they're doing and who they are. You, you kind you, you, you see their soul like you. And, and I think it, the same thing in music, like you hear, there are really, really, really awesome songs that exist. And then there are really, really bad covers of those songs that exist. <laughs> and the reason that a bad cover of a good song can exist I think to varying degrees. Well, it can be informed by a couple of different things, but as long as they have the main musical tools up to task, um, they're not lacking mechanically or in, in terms of their musical capability. Typically it has to do with whether or not there's soul in it. Like, do you feel this person really saying anything to you? Um, and if you don't, then it doesn't matter that they're saying the same words. One of my favorite examples of this is, um, Augustine. Um, Augustine in his Confessions writes about uh, finding consolation in the Garden of Milan. 
And he found consolation sitting there in a garden reading some specific verse. I can't remember the verses, but that doesn't matter because you and I could read the same verse and it will mean nothing to us. But it meant everything to him in that moment because he'd been working towards something that informed the fact that that would be where his consolation was. And in in college, I I defined philosophy for myself, which is, um, I can't remember it, the continued in resolute progression of the individual towards ultimate real uh, ultimate consolation via realization. Wow. Um, that's why I think philosophy is. So I, I kind of rebelled against the idea that there can be a philosophy class because no one, you, you, you don't, you don't necessarily, um, that's not philosophy is a verb. It isn't, <laughs> it isn't something you regurgitate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think like, that's the reason Kierkegaard didn't want to be called a philosopher because he, he wasn't just mindlessly saying nonsense. You know, he, he was attempting to whatever degree we might find enrichment on the pages he wrote on. He was attempting to find his own enrichment from what he was writing. Um, and I I think authenticity is 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 philosophy. It's it's trying to understand and and have purpose in everything that you do. Um, and so I I try to bring that same high level of engagement to what I write and what I put out and um, who I who it's for. And I mean, we you you talked a little bit about how even in spite of having you know, four records, I don't really have an audience. Well, I do have an audience. It, it's not, it's not, you know, millions of people or necessarily even thousands of people, but, um, you know, I, I, right now I'm at the point where I, I know the people that have interacted with my stuff and have found me because of it and were moved by it. And that's a lot more meaningful to me right now. I think, mm. um, it would be nice to, to be known, but I, I think that will come, especially with the record I'm working on right now. Like I, I think it's a lot more commercially viable. And, and I also am in a place where I think I can invest in myself and get some PR and stuff. Um, but like just, just last week, I, I'm, I'm looking to have my first music video shot for a song I called Goodbye COVID-19. And um, I called the owner of a private park where we want to shoot it and I told him about what we were doing and he was like yeah that sounds great can you send me the song I'm like yeah so I sent it to him and he he called me back and he was crying and he wanted to tell me it was like one of the most beautiful songs he'd heard in a long time and told me I could use the park whenever I wanted to and like it was that that's why I do what I do like that's what's important to me yeah and I think if you're really authentic that's all that should be important to you if you're doing if you're trying to write music for people. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. Wow. Thank you so much for that answer. I'm really impressed with all of like the depth that you've gone into in terms of your own life and philosophizing, I guess, oh, <laughs> philosophying um, and trying to be authentic. And I think that a lot of people focus on the metrics of money or followers or, you know, standard definitions of success. And I think your definition of success in terms of, you know, being purposeful and, and helping affect people positively that really matter, like on a, even, even on a small scale, right? Like, cause if you can affect one person's life and change it forever, like you've done your work. Um, yeah, just really awesome. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, would love to continue our conversation another time. Uh, and in terms of just like giving you the opportunity to shout out where people can find you, um, I'd love to let you do that right now. Oh, thanks. Um, so if you really want to support me, um, Bandcamp is really the best place. Um, all my, all my stuff is up there. Even stuff that, you know, is old, <laughs> old projects that probably no one should see. <laughs> um, that's probably the best place, but you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, Apple music everywhere. Just Bometheus, B-O-M-E-T-H-I-U-S. Sweet. Cool. Jonathan, John. Thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) Super glad to have you. And um, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed that episode of the Authentic Path podcast, I really liked talking to Jonathan and learning about his story. 
And I also just want you to know that there is a new newsletter that I'm releasing at phelan.com slash newsletter. And it comes out every Monday morning called the Monday Morning Mystic. And it is your uh, weekly dose of spiritual direction. So I hope you check that out. And if you want to live an authentic life and practice doing stuff in that, then that newsletter is for you. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And as always, stay authentic. Thank you.